All right, let's go Colossians chapter 3. Let's get to it. If you are visiting with us for the first time today, we are about midway through our series on the New Testament letter of Colossians written by the Apostle Paul. And uh, we have creatively entitled this series Colossians. Um, And it's about the book of Colossians. (laughs) And so here's what we're doing today. We are making a transition. The first two chapters of Colossians were uh, the Apostle Paul's doctrinal uh, exposition of who Christ is to a people who are a little confused about who Jesus is. And he spends the first two chapters clarifying that it is in Christ alone that we are saved, not by religious rules or by um, asceticism, which is making life tougher for yourself religiously so that you'll feel good about your works, but it is through Christ alone that we are saved and that there that that Christ is supreme above all earthly powers, above every other thing. And he spends the first two chapters expounding and unpacking that absolutely essential doctrinal truth. Now, the second two chapters, Colossians 3 and 4, he spends time unpacking what this should look look like in the life of a believer. And so the first two chapters are kind of like doctrine. And then the next two chapters, especially chapter 3, he is now making us aware of what this should look like in our life, what impact this should have on us. Now, we, I believe this is our 13th or 12th or 13th week in Colossians. We've kind of gone slow for the first couple of chapters. I think we're going to take three or four Sundays to go through chapter 3. And then chapter 4 will probably take us just two Sundays, probably. It's just kind of a wrap-up. Uh, he's just saying some final pastoral things. And then we'll probably be done with this in mid-June. All of these messages, if you missed any, are on our website. You can uh, check that out, download them, uh, or you can ask us for CDs. We want to make those available to you. Um, And then hopefully by the end of this study, probably mid-June, another four or five weeks, hopefully uh, some of us, maybe one of us, maybe me, will have the entire letter of Colossians memorized. I'm behind. That's all I'm going to tell you right now and uh, hope to lay it out to you. So let's go on Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read these first four verses and then uh, we're going to work our way back through them. And then I have three, uh, well, four things that I want to share with you that I think are obstacles towards our growth in Christ. This is kind of what this chapter is about. What our sanctification, what maturing in Christ, what life in the flesh for being a Christian looks like. And we're going to look at four obstacles that I think have come up as I've meditated on this text this week, and then three things that I want to encourage us to do. And I want to tell you right from the start, these four things and then these three things that we're going to talk about, obstacles and then encouragements, they're not rocket science. Uh, It doesn't take um, a super intellectual advanced mind. Uh, I came up with them. That should tell you about how deep they are. But uh, I believe that they are ancient and profound wisdom from the scriptures. And so um, let's sink our teeth into it. I'm going to read these four verses, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to work our way back through them, and then come up with some um, thoughts about obstacles to our growth and how to grow. So let's do this today. We're going to read the Bible. The Bible is supreme here. I want you to pay attention to the intensity and the starkness of the language. This chapter in particular punches in the mouth cultural Christianity. 
I don't see how you could read this chapter and say, oh, well, I'm kind of a Christian. I sort of go to church and, you know, I've accepted Jesus in this weak cultural way and basically I do what I want. This chapter should wreck us. And this week as I have studied it, it has wrecked me by grace. So let's let the Word of God run through us like a mighty river today. Well, let's read. Paul writes, If then... You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us understand what he would say to us today. Father, first of all, before I pray for our engagement with these beautiful, ancient, true words, I want to step back for just a moment to thank you for this beautiful young lady, Carson Talley, who uh, is is just such a representation of what we want young people to be. God, give us 10,000 more Carson Tallies on the college campuses of Georgia. I think even in the news this past week, what a stark contrast of what has gone on on her campus very, uh, very publicly with a very famous athlete. And then what is going on in her life. What a contrast. We need... 10,000 more Carson Tallies on the college campus to oppose and preach grace to the wickedness that is present that we have seen played out even on her campus. Lord, we also pause to thank you for those among our tribe here at Crosspoint who are in dangerous places serving us. I'm thinking of Luke Wolf and Nick Prevet in Afghanistan. Lord, bless them. Father, I'm thinking of Bob Landig and Amy Stefanata in Iraq. Lord, would you surround them with your angels and your hedge of protection? And would you help these, these four lead well? Dave Jeffries this summer going to Afghanistan. Quinn MacArthur still in Iraq. and uh, God, I'm sure there are many others that I'm forgetting. Dan Kruger in Afghanistan with the Ranger Battalion. Lord, would you bless these soldiers who are who are laying down their lives for the sake of our country's work there in those countries. God, would you give our political leaders wisdom? We know that America is not a perfect country, and we oftentimes serve politicians whose motives are scandalous. But nevertheless, we know that all authority is under your providence. And so, God, would you let Romans 13 be true in this situation where it says that you raise up governments to work out your righteousness. God, would you do that, I pray, in Iraq and Afghanistan? And would you help Bob and Amy and Nick and Luke and Quinn and Dave and Dan? And would you keep them safe? And now, Lord, as we open up your book, would you help us now as we chew on these ancient words 
would the truth of Scripture come alive to us and would we focus our hearts in on what you are saying? We are distracted people. We, we, we are more familiar with characters in our sitcoms than we are with your Scripture. So forgive us, Jesus. Would you help us now do what we cannot do? Would you, Lord Jesus, come into this room by your Spirit and would you settle our hearts And would you unpack these scriptures to us? And before we leave this room, God, would you do two things? Number one, would you save people that do not know you? And Lord, would you encourage those that do? Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit now to flow through this room. Come like a mighty river. Help us. We are weak-minded, feeble, self-absorbed people. And we need you, Jesus. Come now, I pray. In your name, amen. All right, let's go back to verse 1. We're going to work our way through this quickly. Then four things that are obstacles to us, then three encouragements for us. The title of the message today is Seeking and Setting. I want us to seek and set our hearts and minds on Jesus. Paul writes, if then you have been raised with Christ, and this is now a conjunction, it is a, a, a It's a transition from the truth of chapters 1 and 2. And basically what he's been talking about in chapters 1 and 2 is that Jesus has absorbed the wrath and the penalty for our sin and rebellion against God. All of us, whether we're good church kids or whether we're terrorists in the Middle East or whether we're felons or whether whatever, we all of us, the Bible is clear on this, all of us are rebellious against God in our nature. We are glory thieves. We want to receive glory for ourselves. We are fallen. We are separated from God. And we need a sacrifice. We need a substitute. We need more than just help. We need a savior. And Jesus, by his work on the cross, has absorbed the punishment for our sins and is offered. And in fact, commands as Acts says, he commands all people everywhere to repent so that those and only those who will repent and believe and trust in Jesus receive new life in Christ. And he says here that if that has happened in your life, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set, verse 2, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. I want us to focus just real briefly on these two words, seek and set. Uh, I don't spend a whole lot of time in my preaching to kind of give you Greek definitions of words, uh, partly because, um, well, I don't really speak Greek. I've studied it. Um, And I think sometimes somebody who's not super familiar with Greek, like young pastors like me that have had a couple seminary courses on Greek, can actually do more harm with um, their interpretation of Greek than they can good. But in this case, I hope to not butcher the text and just give you a little bit of of uh, a picture into what's going on here in these two words, seek and set. That first word, seek, in the original language of Greek that the New Testament is written in, means to have this passionate pursuit of knowledge, to, to figure things out. Paul is saying that there's something that I want you to know. There's a doctrine, there's a truth, there's a reality about Christ that you need to know. There's, there's some truth that you need to grip your mind on, that you need to sink your teeth in. There's a set of facts. Jesus talks about this in the gospel. He says that there's a truth that will set you free. And I want you to know that that's big for us here. Church is not just an experience. It's not just a vibe. It's not just a feel. There is a set of truths that are clear and plain 
that are necessary for new life in Christ that we need to know and that you need to seek and pursue in your life and you need to know these things and that's why we preach out of the scriptures that's why we don't preach sort of pragmatic self-help sermons so there's something Paul says that I want you to know I want you to know about Jesus and that's what he unpacked in the first two chapters but then but then he goes in a little bit deeper verse two he says set your minds on things that are above and that seek there if it means like to pursuit of factual information then the set has a little bit of a different connotation what Paul is saying there in the original language is is that we should we should give our whole body, soul, and mind, our will, our heart. The word there carries with it the affection of our mind into this truth. And so there's more than just like doctrinal knowledge. There's more than just a catechism if you come from a liturgical background. There's more than just a set of facts. There's more than a doctrinal statement. There's more than a creed. There's this stirring of our affections that we should fall in love with the creator father who calls us into loving relationship we should be enamored and and just enamored and captured with the love of christ and paul is encouraging us here to stir our affections for christ look you may have been a christian all your life but here's a question i want to ask you are you are you presently in love with jesus is he the jewel is he the all-surpassing joy of your life. Jennifer and I moved into a new house recently, which we absolutely love. God has been so kind to us. In my folly as a husband these past two or three years, not leading us well financially and then helping us get out of a house that was not appropriate for us and getting into a house that is much more appropriate for us financially. And there's some woods behind our house and there's this old abandoned bridge and and I was walking on that old abandoned bridge. I walked my dog there every morning. And I was looking up at all of the trees just in our, behind our house. And I was looking at all of the pine needles that had fallen on the ground and these little buds that fall off of pine trees. There weren't hundreds, there weren't thousands. Just in this little acre of woods that I was wandering around on in with my dog, there were millions of leaves and pine needles and thousands of birds. And I was overcome with God in this little patch of dirt on the corner of River and Biggers Road. You have created such magnificent beauty that it is breathtaking to the soul. And for the first time in a long time, I was captivated with the beauty that is Christ, our creator. Friends, when was the last time you just took in and just thought about how beautiful God is? That God wants more than our religious following or our creedal devotion or our doctrinal statements, but God has come to be worshipped and enjoyed forever. If you grew up as a Presbyterian, you knew this. This is the first statement in the Westminster Catechism that, that, that man exists to glorify God and, give it to me you Presbyterians, enjoy Him. Evidently we don't have many Presbyterians. God, we, are, we are here to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Have you fallen in love with Jesus? Have you been more than saved by Him? Is He more beautiful than anything this world has? 
And by the way, and we'll get to this later, that is the only way you can fight sin. The only way, men, that you can battle against the temptations that wage against your soul is to fall more in love with the surpassing beauty of Jesus than to be satisfied with the broken beauty of some temptation. Christ comes more than just so that we might be saved, but so that we might worship and fall in love with the beauty that is the Trinity. And that's what... Paul is saying here, he's saying, set your minds and your hearts, stir your affections for the things that are above, not for the things of this earth. And isn't it, you know that little statement, I think I've said it here a few times before, that little pithy little bumper sticker statement that sometimes Christians can be so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. You ever heard that? That's a lie. Paul is saying here is that such a be so heavenly minded that when you are heavenly minded, then you finally become of some earthly good. We talked about that in the first chapter where he says that I've seen your faith and your love for all the saints. Why? Because you're concerned with a whole bunch of people? No, because of your the hope laid up for you in heaven. And so there's this heavenliness that we long for, and that is not a reduction of pleasure, but it's actually the fulfillment of all pleasure. Verse three. This is an incredible statement. Listen to this. It's almost as if Paul is saying, do this. Why? Be so alive to the things of Christ. Be so alive to his way and his wisdom and the joy that is in Jesus. Why? And it's almost like he's saying, sort of like, come on, don't you know this? Because verse 3, for you have you've died. You have died. You're dead. You ever been around a, a dead body? I don't mean this to be funny because death is very serious, but dead bodies are unresponsive to the things of this world. And Paul is being so stark. And the contrast that he is drawing here is he's not saying, look, your life is in trouble. Add a little bit of Jesus and start thinking a little bit more about how God might want you to love him. He's saying, you've died, you're dead. You are dead to this world, and you're alive to Christ. Just let that, that picture, we are a corpse to the things of this world. That is, friends, that is amazingly convicting. Is it not? Think of all the things that I am so in tune with. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are so obscured. There shouldn't be, like, where's Brad in there? Where, who is, who is, and I just think about my own life, and I think about so often my natural inclination to promote my personality, or for me to shine, or for me to get credit, or for me to kind of be the one. I think about so often, how often I sort of uh, strategically arrange conversations so that something that I have done that is good will be brought up. Do you do that? Do you do that? I got more work here to do than I thought. I mean, you know, I just think about how often, even in my life, after being a Christian, I am a glory thief. I am a glory thief. And what Paul is saying here is you, your life, like where, there needs to be some digging done by those around you so that they would find where you are because you're, you're obscured. You're under two levels of the Trinity here. When Christ, he says that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. No, I'm not going to say it. I'm going to say it. Uh, Easter Sunday, there was these signs all around town and they were promoting some service and they had the picture of this pastor all over it. I wanted to go pick them all up and say, not your face, Jesus's. 
We live in a culture in America where, especially in spiritual things, there's this promotion of personalities. Listen, this is true. And I'm going to mark it here. It is April 25th, 2010. If we ever have my sorry mug on anything that we're promoting in this church, don't walk, run to another church. Check our website regularly. If my sorry mug is ever on the front page of that website, don't walk, run to another church. But let's, it's not all about me. What about you? <laughs> is your life so obscured? Are you a glory thief like me so often in your life? Is it... Is your life just a constant exertion of energy so that you will be noticed? We have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4. And this is a truth that I absolutely love that I think is, needs to be continually hammered into my soul, which we'll get into a little bit. Lest you think that the Christ life, that living for Jesus is some sort of is some sort of grind your teeth, no pleasure, hold on for 60 years, living this mundane, pleasureless existence until we get to heaven and then we're going to float around in robes and play harps or something goofy like that, which is not the truth. No, what he's saying here is that there's this joy here and then there's this joy everlasting that far surpasses any broken pleasure that we have. He says in verse 4, For when Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. There is this hope, there is this love, there is this longing, there is this joy which is ours that will far surpass any broken temporal pleasure here on this earth. I want you to notice two things before we get into our lists of obstacles to growth. I want you to notice the intensity of this truth. Doesn't this just smash cultural Christianity? Doesn't just a smash kind of nominal believism, like, oh yeah, I'm kind of a Christian. This leaves no room for people that are not passionately pursuing Jesus in everything that they do. And then, and then the second thing I want you to know is just contrast this with sort of like American Christianity, the, 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 the general tenor of American Christianity, where you basically need help. You need to add Jesus to your life because you've hit a rough patch and you need a little bit of help. We don't need help, friends. We, we need to die. And then we need to come alive to Christ. This, the, the tenor of this is so strong. Okay, four obstacles to our growth. Buckle your seatbelts because you know, I was deeply convicted as I meditated on these things. Uh, four things that are obstacles to our growth in Christ. And that's what Paul is arguing for here. He's saying, okay, you've been saved. Now I want, you to look, I want this to look like this in your life. I want you to grow. First is a pervasive spiritual laziness. Look, we are lazy people. Let's be honest. Um, we live in the most technologically advanced culture in the history of civilization. This has produced many blessings for us. You can download all sorts of spiritual wisdom through the teaching of very gifted people all across the world on podcasts, on the Internet, TV, all those types of things. But it's also produced in, you know, there was a time when I was my dad's remote control. And there was a little knob for all of you boys and girls. There was a knob on, actually the TV had knobs. And there was this, it was, it was always on you, and then it went 2 through 13. And at, remember that, for all of you that were born in the 70s or before? And at midnight, they played the national anthem on all the networks, and then they all went like to, just went out to the, the colors, the lines. Remember that? Well, boys and girls, um, I used to be 
my dad's remote control. But now we just have a plethora of options. We're spiritually lazy people. Like we, we carry with us sort of the consumerism that our culture indoctrinates us in, into spiritual things. And so whenever it gets hard, whenever relationships get hard in the church, whenever you get mildly offended, whenever people just don't fall over themselves to make much of you like the, this culture does, then you get easily offended. When the Bible gets a little bit difficult to understand, then we just we push back, don't we? And we, just, we are constantly programmed for the path of least resistance, and that is terrible for our souls. Last night, uh, Jennifer's, we ate lunch or dinner at Jennifer's family's at her parents' house. Her dad was a Texas farm boy. He was one of 12 children, right? And her uncle Doyle, who's this really neat, um, interesting uncle that is her, one of her dad's older brothers, they were 12 children that grew up on a Texas farm in Lubbock, Texas. Uh, her grandmother, Jennifer's grandmother, my father-in-law's mom was a full Cherokee Indian, and her grandfather, my father-in-law's dad, was just a Texas farmer. They had kids, they had 12 kids because they needed to pick the cotton and work the cotton. That's all they did. And last night around the dinner table, Troy, my father-in-law, and his brother Doyle, Jennifer's uncle, were telling us, us about their childhood, about when they were like little boys, like four and five, that all all day long in the summer, they would pick cotton. They would go out there in the morning and they would pick cotton until they would have a lantern at the end of night. And then because this whole town was just a cotton picking town, <laughs> literally, they, they would let out school when the harvest came in six weeks in the fall and they would pick cotton. And that just the teenage boys were expected to bring in like several hundred pounds a day of cotton. Cotton doesn't weigh that much. You've got to pick a lot of cotton to get a couple hundred pounds of it. They would work from morning until night. And I was just thinking about my soft little, my little girly hands. I mean, I can't work. I was thinking about my kids, man. I mean, they're just, they're just softies, man. I mean, just how weak we are. And I, I mean, I thank God for modern farm equipment that, you know, People don't have to do that anymore. Maybe there's somebody still doing there. But it became kind of an analogy, an analogy for me spiritually, like how, just how wimpy we are spiritually. Oh, God, we, uh, it's just hard. The Bible's hard. We just push back so easy. Listen, men, you need to lead the way in this. You were created in the image of God. Corinthians says that men are the glory of God. Jesus is a warrior king. You were created for the battle. You were created to fight. You were created to oppose wickedness. You were created to resist temptation. You were created to fight, to not be lazy, to get up early, to discipline your body, to read, to push through boredom. You were created that way. Everything in this culture points you to laziness. Let's not be lazy. The second point follows with that we, we are self-absorbed people, are we not? There's a whole marketing culture out there, and it exists in the Christian culture. Three steps for you to have a better life. Five steps for you to be more successful. We, we have boiled down ancient biblical truth into leadership principles for business executives. Now, I'm not saying there aren't leadership principles in the Bible that business executives can run with for their joy and God's glory. 
But when we have reduced the Bible in down to living a more successful American life, we have not just missed the Bible's point. We have, we're not even in the same hemisphere as the scriptures. Because all of our arrows, don't they, we just, we point to ourselves. The Bible is not given so that we might live more successful lives. The Bible is living so that despite the brokenness that is in this world, we might glorify God who does all things for his glory and his good pleasure. We are self-absorbed people and we need to confess that. We need to repent of that. We need to realize that spiritual truth, as Reynolds said earlier, was never meant to dead end on us. We are not cul-de-sacs. We're conduits. Our life is as nothing. We're here for the glory of God, not for our gain. Third, this is important. This is really important for those of you that were born after the Internet, which may be most of us. I don't know. No, that's not true, actually. I remember when Al Gore invented it. That was like in the early 90s. (laughs) By the way, speaking of Jennifer's family, can I say this? Jennifer is actually Al Gore's sixth cousin. Just wanted to throw that out there. All right. (laughs) Um, So don't talk about my family. All right. Um, The third thing that is an obstacle to our growth is, listen, we have, we live in a culture of options. And we have a distracting abundance of options. Listen to me very carefully on this, especially you young folks. You need to work. One of the best things that you can do for your spiritual growth is work to destroy the God of options. And I'm talking about the small g, the false God of options. Work to destroy the false God of options. We have too many options. We have too many choices. And what it does is it reduces us to stagnation and it produces in us a complete lack of commitment. We've got too many churches we can go to. We've got too many preachers we can listen to. We've got too many boyfriends or girlfriends that we can possibly ask out on a date. We've got so many colleges. We've got so many things. We've got, and, and what we do is we don't want to commit to anything for fear that something better might come along. And so all the while we just sort of stay back and well, and this is how it works out like in, like in, in, in boys and girls in their relationship. How many, how many times have you heard this? Hey, a guy likes a girl, maybe we should do something sometime. Because God forbid that you actually nullify your options, tell that girl that you like her, and risk the possibility of getting rejected. And so maybe we should do something sometime. And she looks at you like you're from Jupiter. Oh, no, I wasn't saying it like that. I mean, just like maybe we should do something sometime. When in reality, you really liked her. So here's how you ask a girl out, boys. Would you like to go out with me? Shut your mouth. And then wait, don't say that to her, you shut, then you shut your mouth. And then you wait for her to say one of two things. Yes or no. <laughs> but we're so wimpy, right? Because we don't want to commit to anything. And so we go to churches and we, we never really fill out a card and we kind of, we sort of play ninja, right? Nobody really knows us. And so we, you know, we kind of, we never, nobody, nobody... Nobody knows your life. You don't give your heart to something. You stay on the periphery. And then if you get offended or you're not feeling good about it, you can run somewhere else and you can hang out on the edge. And then 
15 years down the line, you can criticize that place because they didn't love you the right way or oh, it didn't work out, but I never really committed. You, you, you need to work to destroy the God of options in your relationships with the opposite sex, in your job, in your church. You need to work to destroy the false God of options because someday you'll be 80 and you'll have never really given your soul to anything worthwhile. I got one girl. She's all I got. I don't care what, listen to me. I don't care what she does. I will never leave her. Never. You say, well, what about if she does? I will never leave her. And I pray that she will never leave me. God calls one of his Old Testament prophets to marry a prostitute as a sign of his faithfulness to us. And then he tells husbands to love their wives like Christ loves the church. I will never leave her. Please don't take that as an endorsement to do whatever you want to do. I will never leave her. I, I will never I will get frustrated with you over the course of the next thirty years. And I know you should never say never and some God may move me, but I really do not think I'm going anywhere except for here. I'm giving my life to this place. You need to give your life to something. You need to work to destroy the God of options. I think I've made my point. Fourth, I won't spend much time on this because I've talked about it a lot before. We have a weak satisfaction with temporal things. I've read that C.S. Lewis quote several times recently about how he says we're far too easily pleased. We're like children that are playing in the dirt and we're preferring the dirt over the offer of a vacation by the sea. And I think, getting back to what I said before about men, how you're far too easily pleased, I think the only way you can battle besetting sins in your life, listen to me, young men, if you're struggling with things at war against your soul, even your own flesh and temptation. The only way you will truly, truly, I think, conquer that in your life and win victory over that is if you fall more in love with the beauty of Christ than you do with the beauty of a female figure. We, are, we, we, we give in far too easily because there is a joy. There is a joy in marital intimacy. There is a joy in living for God. There is a joy in doing life the way Christ has called us to do it, that far surpasses the broken, temporary, passing pleasures of sin. Just this week, I was just feeling my, my soul was being raged against by some temptations that I have not struggled with for some time. And I was just feeling kind of this tug, nothing specific, just this tug, and I just walked in the back of my house, and I just said, Jesus, I want, I want to... Fall in love, fall in love again with you and the surpassing joy of knowing Christ and doing life your way. Would you settle my heart on the beauty that is in you and the things that you've given me? God, I bring this to you. Men, you have to fall more in love with the eternal joy and beauty of Christ than you do with things of this world that ultimately are broken and will destroy you. So those are the four obstacles to our growth. Three things that we should do to seek and set, and then we'll be done. Number one, take responsibility for your spiritual growth. 
I think this goes along with laziness and self-absorption. But take, listen, take responsibility for your spiritual growth. It's your life. God has made you the steward over your heart. Churches need to get better. Pastors need to preach better. I need to do better. We, we could think of a thousand different excuses. But you know what the natural instinct of our culture is? Is to blame shift. And say, oh, well, if that person would have just done, if my wife would have, if my husband, if the church would have, if this person would have been a little more friendly, this pastor would have, would, I mean, we just, if this employer would have done this, look, we, we blame shift. We blame shift. And at the end of the day, we got a whole bunch of excuses why we're not the person that God has intended us to be. Take responsibility for your spiritual growth. Men, take responsibility. You are the priest of your home. Take responsibility before or for your spiritual growth. Before there was children's church and before there was Sunday school and all this, all this, there used to be this thing called dads who would take the responsibility to lead their families. Look, we want to do as much as we can to, as a family, love and serve one another, but take responsibility for your spiritual growth. Secondly, and this is so simple, but it's so true, engage, engage the Bible. Look, I, I don't have... <laughs> I'm not a Bible reading plan kind of a guy, but maybe you are. There are a plethora of them out there that are excellent. Find one, sink your teeth into it. I'm a little bit more spontaneous, but the best thing that I have done for my soul, and this was even before I became a paid Christian, was begin to make the Bible a central part of my life every day. And here's where I'm going to say, guys, you, you have, guys and gals, you've just got to figure this one out. You have the ability to figure out, look, we know how to, we know how to expose ourselves to the things that interest us, don't we? <laughs> we know how to do it. Some of you know... The stats for the sophomore quarterback in Texas that might be on the recruit list for your favorite team. Some of you more know, know more about the intricacies of, of the complicated plot of the m- m- show Lost. I mean, you can explain that. If you can figure that out, you have enough mental capacity to figure... Oh, I see some nervous shifting. I think I've hit a chord here. If you can figure that out, you have, look, you, we know how to get what we want, don't we? It's not a matter of intelligence or desire. It's a matter of focus. Engage the Bible. Do whatever you have to do to make the Bible primary in your life. If you're reading the newspaper and you're not reading the Bible, you need to repent. If you're watching TV, even a second of it, and you're, second of it, and you're not reading the Bible, you need to repent. If you're working out and exercising and you're not reading the Bible, you need to repent. Paul says, what does a little bit of bodily exercise profit us compared to spiritual gain? Come on, we need to be peaceful. People of the book. We are intelligent, resourceful Americans. We know how to do this. We know how to get the things we like. You don't need you don't need a little book, a little help. You don't need you need desire. You need the fountain of your passion to be pointed at the book. And you need a guy that's spitting every now and again to tell you that you gotta engage the Bible. Life will not work unless the Bible is primary in your life. It won't. And I'm not going to throw some cute little combination lock at you and 
three steps here, three minutes in the morning, an acronym. Come on, maybe that works for you. Do whatever you have to do to be ruthless in your pursuit of the scriptures and engage the God of the Bible who is far bigger and is far more supreme and is far more glorious and is far more sovereign and is far more great than we make him out to be in our cultural, weak, pathetic Christianity. Engage the scriptures and the God of the Bible. And then finally, third, and I end with this. By the way, before I move on to that point, let me, let me tell you about a book by Mark Dever, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. I went to the conference in his church a couple weeks ago. What does God want of us anyway? A quick overview of, overview of the whole Bible. If you are struggling with seeing how the Bible fits together, this is a very short book. You can read it in an hour and a half. I recommend that you get it. There's a link for it on our website. This will help you understand how the Bible has one great theme. So get this book. Now the third and final one here. Take responsibility for your spiritual growth. Engage the Bible, the God of the Bible. And thirdly, give yourself to community. Give yourself to community. And what I mean by this is give yourself to a group of people, a local church. Join that local church. You realize that most of the New Testament doesn't really make a whole lot of sense out of the context of a group of people who have committed to make themselves submit to the authority of some leaders and who are there giving watch over their soul. But because, remember, we live in a culture that wants so many options and is a culture that is scared of commitment, we don't commit to things. So give yourself to a community. But don't just be part of the church. Give yourself to another level of that community. Give yourself to a group of people in that community that you can serve, that you can expose your life to, that can know you that have authority to confront patterns of behavior in your life that might be leading you in a way that is not God-honoring. And then seek for ways. And again, this, if we try and hang this on a program and say, oh, well, we've got this little thing over here you can do, I think we kill the organic and beautiful nature of what God has put inside of us. Not to say that programs and organization and church is wrong, but we can't over-program the organic, beautiful nature of spiritual growth. What you need to do is you need to seek find people in the church that you can bless, that you can serve, that you can learn from. I'm going to give you a kind of a, a, little, a little phrase that I learned as a very young Christian that has served me well. It's a little corny, but I think it's pretty helpful. That we in our Christian relationships should always be doing three things. We should pursue a Paul. That means, Paul, like the Apostle Paul, somebody that's over us in Christ that knows more about Jesus than we do, we should pursue that person and try and learn from them. We should be a Barnabas. Barnabas was Paul's helper. He was a friend of Barnabas. His name means encouragement. So we should be a friend. We should have friends kind of on the same level of, of us. And we should, here's where the corniness, they all same letter. We should, we should train a Timothy, somebody that maybe is not quite as advanced as we are in Christ, or they're younger in the Lord, and they just need service, they need somebody to kind of help them with their life, we should, I know it's corny, but it's good, pursue a Paul, be a Barnabas, train a Timothy. But what we've settled for in the church is we want to all just kind of be Barnabas. We want a little group of friends that's kind of homogenous, that's sort of like us, people from the same neighborhood, maybe friends we've grown up all our life, that kind of look like us. We form a little small group, and then we sit around a table, and we just talk about how life, how hard life is, and it just becomes kind of an incestuous little pool of Christian misery. What you need to do 
That was good, by the way. Incestuous. I'm going to say it again. A little incestuous little pool of Christian misery. Yeah, life is hard. I know. I mean, come on. Let's read. No, you, start unpacking your life for some young guy that needs somebody at your level, whatever it is. If you've been a Christian for six weeks, find somebody that's been a Christian for four weeks and tell them about the two weeks that you got on them in humility and grace. Say, look, dude, check this out. I just read this. How about this? Unpack your life. And if you're a 30-something dude and all you're hanging around is other 30-something dudes, find a 60-year-old dude that you can say, hey, help me with this. But don't wait for that guy to come to you. Pursue it. Take responsibility for your growth and say that my growth in Christ and the fruit that I'm going to bear for the kingdom is of ultra importance in my life. And I'm not going to wait for the church to come up with a little program and assign me a list or have a lunch. Come on. We're resourceful Americans. We can do this. We can get what we want. We need to want Christ and growth. Go after somebody that's over you and say, hey, have courage. Have relational courage. And say, hey, man, help me with this. And if you're an older man or woman, make your life about something more than fishing and golf and vacation. Pour out your life. Serve. And then find some people around you that you can bless and connect with and then look for somebody that might need your help. Wherever you are, whatever level you are, there is somebody that needs your experience and your wisdom along the way. And I end with this. Friends, none of this means anything unless you are a believer in Jesus. This is all just self-help that doesn't mean anything unless you have repented and believed in Jesus. And so if you are not yet a Christian, or if it has become clear to you today that you don't know Jesus, then here's what the Bible says about how to do that. It says to repent and believe. The fact that you're becoming aware of that, I believe, is very strong biblical evidence that the Spirit of God is drawing you. It's called grace, and it hits your soul, and it makes Christ so beautiful and apparent and real to you, that you realize that you're not in relationship with him. And the Bible says that in order to be in relationship with Jesus, you have to do two things. You don't have to raise your hand or fill out a card or join a church or repeat a prayer after me. Those things might be helpful. I'm not bashing those things if you've done those in the past. But the Bible says that in order to be a Christian, you repent and you believe. That means you turn from self-reliance and trust in your glory-thieving ways. And you trust in what Jesus did as a sacrifice for your sins and your rebellion on the cross, satisfying the wrath of a holy and righteous God for your sins. And he offers you new life. And when you repent and believe, the Bible says that you become his. God becomes more than just your creator. He becomes your father. And you are brought into the family of Christ where you are now saved. You're born again. You're a new person. And as we read at the beginning, you have died. You've died to your old way. That doesn't mean that everything's going to go perfect or that you're not going to be tempted by your old ways of life, but it means that you are now beginning this process of infancy, spiritual infancy, wherein you grow in the Lord, in ever-increasing death to the world and life to Jesus, which is for your joy and God's glory. But in order to do that, friends, you must repent and believe. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. The guys are going to come back and lead us in a few songs of response and worship. And if you realize that you're not a Christian then you just repent. You say, Christ, I turn from self-reliance. I have been a glory thief and I trust in you. That, when you do that, the Bible says that you are his. You are born again. If you'd like to talk about that, a couple of us will be down here or after church. I'd love to talk to you about it. There's nothing more important in the world than you repenting and believing in Jesus. And then getting planted in a group of people that will help you live your new life in him. 
Secondly, if you're a Christian and the Holy Spirit has unpacked some things for you today, don't just leave. Don't just let this be like water off of a duck's back. There are all these things are not... Look, I confess that sometimes I'll be preparing a sermon, preparing some things, and I'll think, ah, there's something for that person. Yeah! And I really try and, I really try and temper that. I don't ever want to... This particular week, more than usual... I personally was convicted. All of these things that I came up with were arrows that were pointed directly at me. This isn't just, oh yeah, I was counseling this person and this this would be a good thing for Crosspoint to hear because I heard this happen once. No, this was all personal reflection. And so if any of it hits you, we, we need to also repent and turn again to Jesus. It doesn't mean that we're not Christians if you've already done that, but it means that we, again, need to live a life of continual repentance before God that brings joy and life and God glory and us fulfillment. So let's do that today. Lord, as we prepare to respond to you, I pray again two things as I prayed at the beginning. Number one, that if there is a person in this room that does not know you, they are not born again, Lord, would you cause them to be born again by the living and abiding word of God? Would you, as Ephesians says, make them alive in Christ? Would you give them ears to hear? And would you bring their dead heart that has been in rebellion, that has been a thief of your glory for all of their years up to this point, would you, by the power of the truth of the gospel of Jesus and what he did on the cross, would in those words... Would you bring life to their soul? And as their first response of life, would they put their faith and trust in you and turn from their old self-relying, glory-thieving ways? Would you cause that to happen, Jesus, I pray, now? God, secondly, for the rest of us that have done that, that are now saved sinners, that are pardoned rebels, would you... Put your finger on our hearts. God, in particular, would you make us a group of people that is just obsessively focused on others and not ourselves? Would you break us outside of our little social cliques and would you give us a burden for people that are from different neighborhoods and from different schools and from different socioeconomic spheres? God, would you help us? Would you make us an unusual mix of people from different tribes and tongues and 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 cultures and demographics. God, would you do that? God, would you give each of us in here a sense of mission? Would you see that your desire for us is not for us to just gather uh, knowledge like a retention pool, but for us to be a conduit, a flow, a river, so that we would grow in you and bear fruit. And God, would you make us uncomfortable? Would you convict us? Would you push us outside of our circles and would you, would you help us be people that, that, that bless others, that give ourselves to a community, that destroy the God of options, that push through self-absorption, that resist laziness. And God, would you let my words today encourage these people that I love and would it spur us on towards fruitfulness and gospel advancing uh, joy in our city and God would Jesus be seen and savored by us all in this room today and would you would you smash our comfortable notions of nominal cultural easy believism and would you stir our affections 
And would young men in this room who are struggling with lust, would they, would they see the surpassing beauty of Christ as far more valuable and far more eternally satisfying, even in this life, than the passing pleasures of sin and giving in to a broken temptation? God, would you cause husbands to commit their hearts today to their wives and to their children and to this church. And God, would you let us put our hearts on the table and would you say, would you cause somebody in this room to say, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. This is my girl. This is my family. This is my place. This is my job. This is my city. This is who I am. God, would you cause them for that commitment to bring joy? And would you bear fruit? Would you do a great work in us? And in spite of my feeble words, God, would you move now, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.